Three, two, one, go. Oh, hey, Larry, check this out. I just spent the last 13 hours Google hacking. Man, I know everything about you. Your cats, tattoos, the fact that you own a hearse. Oh, and we'll skip over that part about peanut butter. Whoa, that's all you found? All right, well, all right, so yeah, that stuff is true. You know, I own a hearse and... 13 hours? Man, that took you long enough. Did you know I have your mother's maiden name, the name of all the dogs you've ever owned, and that you ordered large quantities of Vaseline and duct tape? And all that only took me about 30 minutes. Really? You found the Vaseline and duct tape? I did. Damn. How did you find all that so fast, though? Maltigo from Paterva. Maltigo, my friend, is the answer. It's the best information gathering and kind of reconnaissance tool that I know of. I'm going to have to go get my copy right now, dude. I'll be right back. <laughs> Son of a uh, I left this computer unlocked again. And we're back with the uh, double interview slash debate uh, with Richard Baitlick, the director of Incident Response at GE, and Ron Gula, CEO of Tenable Network Security, where they will debate the pros and cons of having a strong IT controls program with one focused on responding to threats. There are many perceived advantages and disadvantages of both strategies from a cost, scalability, and effectiveness. Mr. Guler will attempt to espouse the benefits and defend the practice of controls, while Richard would enumerate the positive aspects of threat-centric monitoring. Who wrote that? That's no one from Paul.com that wrote that. He uses way too big of a word. I think somebody with a control-centric background wrote that. Yes. Wow. A lot of big words. A lot of big acronyms. words. Like, so, like advantages. Ron and Rich, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hey, thank thanks you. for having us. Yeah. So, um, since um, it's no big secret that Ron's my boss, I'll start with Ron. <laughs> so, Ron, why don't you describe describe what is meant by an IT security program focused on controls? Um, cool. Well, uh, it means a couple couple different things, probably a lot of different things to different people. But the basic concept is that you should run your network the same way that uh, air traffic control runs their airplanes and FedEx can you know, ship packages at a lower time and Netflix can get you the DVDs in a low time. Uh, you want to break things down to the lowest common denominator uh, and make sure that they happen the way they're supposed to happen and that uh, everybody along the way knows how to do it. Now, examples of things like Netflix and FedEx, you know, everybody can uh, uh, relate to that. Uh, they probably don't think of that when they think of their network. They think of their network as the Wild West or uh, different things like that. And that's the problem. If you can control your network, then you can look for small deviations and small things and little things like looking for hackers or looking for demonstrations, uh, reports that demonstrate that you're compliant with whatever standard you're supposed to be compliant with. becomes very, very easy. However, in the real world, this is something that people strive for but often fail. Mm. So, Rich, why don't you uh, give us a little introduction and describe what you mean by uh, monitoring program using a threat-focused model. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so thanks for inviting us. I guess w one thing we should get out of the way is that, um, and in fact, you may get to this later, is that these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. It's not like you do one or the other, perhaps. 
Um, but it's sort of more, I would say, where you apply focus and what ends up reflecting reality. So for some organizations, you may be in a situation where either through um, compliance reasons or regulation or the size of the enterprise is small enough, you may find that a controls-based approach is, is going to work for you. Uh, in other organizations, um, ones that have grown over time, ones that are extremely large, one where there's a diverse set of systems for which perhaps there are no controls known or uh, it's a very dynamic environment, you may find that you're not able to implement a controls-based approach. And so when I talk about a threat-centric approach, I'm trying to advocate what is the state of the enterprise and focus your attention on the things that are getting beat up the most. Uh, in other words, it's, it's nice to try to defend against what you think is happening, but it's even better to defend against what you see is happening. And to take it into the proactive realm, to let someone like a red team to go out and say, well, this is how I would try to get into this enterprise, or this is how I'm going to simulate how an adversary might get into the enterprise, and then structure your defenses around those outcomes. Mm. So now my my first obvious question, um, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pose it out to, to the both of you, um, is, you know, and Rich, you kind of touched on this. I mean, shouldn't you do both? Shouldn't you have a control process and also a, a threat-focused process? Yeah, so the reason I'm I'm pretty passionate about this is, I feel that the, and by the way, whenever I say, you know, the controls-based approach, I'm not like picking out Ron and saying Ron is bad or anything like that. I tend to save my ire for more like government types where they tend to be very, and by the way, again, I'm not <laughs> blaming the government workers. It tends to be the people who pass the regulations where we have a problem. They tend to focus on these controls. And even when they use terms like monitoring, it's not about monitoring bad guys. It's about monitoring your compliance to a control. Mm. And to me, that's like, monitoring whether your football team is all at least six feet tall and weighs 250 pounds. It doesn't tell you if you're winning the, the game. You know, There's no scoreboard there. It's a roster which says, you know, my guys meet this control. There's no real understanding if that control has an effect in the real world. So you can be completely control compliant, but when you get out in the field, you're a complete fail. Right. So to me, so, I feel like we need to swing that pendulum away from, from the controls. So, Ron, over to you. I mean, should we do both, and you know, which way should the the pendulum swing, in in your opinion? Swing, yeah, swing. The, Rich is definitely right. the The larger the organization is, or the more people you have involved, you know, the effect of the control becomes watered down. So, so let's just take a really simple one. Like, gee, you're supposed to run antivirus on every desktop. Well, you know, what's a desktop? Is my VMware server a desktop? Does the firewall have a desktop? If you look at PCI, it says every server has to run antivirus. That, that, that's kind of interesting, right? So we get, we get focused on this minutia of reporting. You know, are we compliant with, with running an antivirus versus do we have any viruses? You know, so it totally takes you off of, the, of, of that threat focus uh, because, you know, we're going around counting the numbers of McAfee that we have installed on, on, on the network. Now, where, where I think the controls help, though, is when you step outside of that security arena and you have administrators and politicians and managers and whoever who have no idea about threat, you know, sometimes having a golden rule of saying you must configure things a certain way is very, very, very valuable. And that is a kind of a, a kind of control. Mm. So, I mean, Rich, over to the... Um the uh, the threat model approach is is there a danger that you could go into uh, so called firefighting mode all the time and leave out a lot of the controls based processes that are you know somewhat helping your network to function? 
Well, the way I like to look uh, think about it is if you don't have firefighters, you're doing something wrong. Mm. So every, you know, there's no town in the history of the world that, that survived without firefighters. Uh, same thing but with the police force. So every well-run network has to have firefighters. And chances are in, in this day and age, you need professional firefighters. You don't need a volunteer firefighter model. So uh, it's good to have firefighters. However, the next level of maturity is to have fire marshals as well people who can take the lessons of why there are houses burning and say, we need to improve this aspect of the, the building code. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to identify these arsonists and turn them over to the, you know, have the police get involved. So there is certainly a level of maturity there, but to say, well, we don't focus on firefighting is to sort of, um, it's just to admit that you probably aren't paying attention to the things that, that need to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And that uh, fire marshal example is a good one of a control you know, working on building standards, working on fire safety codes, uh, you know, if we had that kind of practice on the network side, there'd be less fire, you know, there'd be less fires. And uh, so there's definitely a balance. I think that's a great example. I got to, I got to remember that one. (laughs) So now Ron, um, you know, a lot of people I think will point at controls and especially compliance and say, well, it's just a checkbox and everyone just wants the checkbox. And once that box is checked, they think they're secure. So from a controls perspective, what's the best way to deal with that? one of the problems with controls and, and being compliant, demonstrating compliance, is there's a lot of standards, right? So if you are fortunate enough to have to demonstrate compliance against a standard like PCI or FISMA, that's great because you don't have to convince people that, hey, I think running an intrusion detection system or patching our systems or changing our password once in a while is a good thing. You know, so a lot of times, you know, those, that's what those standards, you know, uh, put out there. So that's a, that's a good baseline. Problem is, is that's a baseline that the attackers know about too. And and uh, uh, Josh Corman, who you, you guys should probably have on the show here, he always talks about the great thing about PCI is it's like you can guarantee that you know your first six or twelve opening moves of chess. The, the adversaries know what you can uh, can do. Um, but you know, if you're dealing with an environment where there's absolutely no control, absolutely no security, you have no idea what's on the network. Uh, that's 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 a really hard thing to uh, to move to a more secure state. So these controls where people kind of lament and say, yeah, you know, it's just a checkbox, or I've, I'm always hear the story of, yes, we have a firewall, it's not plugged in, it's, it's in the back room, you know, but we have a firewall. You know, those people haven't gone through a PCI audit, right? If that, if that was the, a firewall and you, had, you were subject to a QSA type of audit, you would fail your audit. So, um, you know, in the real world of, of compliance where you actually have some regulatory involved, you, you do have to do those minimum and demonstrate that minimum level of, uh, of, of compliance with those regulations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Rich, back to you. When, in terms of cost, um, one of the things I've run into at previous organizations is when we talk about especially things like incident response and being threat-centric, it can be very costly in terms of time because you have to devote an employee to review logs, to do incident response, to write reports, to do lessons learned from incident response and constantly adapt um, you know, the security program. So, And you may be taking time away from some of the operational duties such as implementing firewalls and work working on compliance and things of that nature. So how do you, how do you best uh, approach management to get those resources and, and justify the cost? So that, that's a magic question, right? This is something that I spent uh, years, literally, at, in my current employer making these cases. And um, if, I had, if I had a little preparation, I would have written down all the different justifications for you. Um, there's a whole, a whole series of words that begin with the letter C that I've used, um, 
I'll, I'll put them on a blog post. I've, I've, t- I've talked about them before, but you can say that by having experts, for example, can do incident detection response for you, that is cheaper than a lot of the alternatives. For example, it is a lot cheaper to be you know, disrupting intruders in near real time, which is possible. The most mature shops in the world can do this against the most mature adversaries that are out there. Uh, and you can save yourself considerable heartache compared to having your notification be uh, a person in a black suit showing up at your door with some data that belongs to you. So um, typically I find with business people that cost is the most effective way. Um, you could also throw in there compliance, mm-hmm. consolidation. Um, there's, there's a lot of other words we could talk about. Um, the, the last one is crisis. I mean, the easiest way to justify resources is in a post-crisis environment where you say we don't want to go through that again. And unfortunately, many organizations right. have to go through that uh, that stage in order to really get serious about this. Mm-hmm. So now, Ron, back over to you with respects to cost. I mean, do you find organizations in a, um, a decision where um, they're looking at the cost to be compliant versus the cost of uh, not being compliant and maybe incurring a breach and, and doing the math and choosing one or the other sheerly based on cost? Yeah, from the, from the CIO down, and assuming that the CSO reports to the CIO, one of the things that I'm hearing is that the cost of demonstrating compliance is about the same as the cost of doing, uh, being compliant. Like, let's say you have uh, a typical large domain, thousands of users. You don't give your users um, administration, administrator access, right? So and you're limiting this type of software they can install, things like that. So you basically, you got 10,000 desktops more or less all patched and configured the same. You're, you're pretty good. You know, you probably got antivirus on there. Now, if you have to demonstrate compliance, you have to bring in a third-party tool, vulnerability scanner, agent, logs, you know, things like that, configuration auditors, things like that. That's a whole separate, separate apparatus to do, uh, you know, an independent audit of what's, of what's out there. So I'm seeing a lot of organizations basically say, hey, look, the cost of demonstrating compliance is almost as much as the cost of, of doing, uh, right. of being compliant. Hey, we know we're secure, but, you know, independently demonstrating it is, is, a, is a big deal. Hmm. Uh, now, something we've had a lot of experience with is FDCC and the federal government. And when FDCC first came out, I was like, yeah, system hardening, not a, not a real big deal. But, you know, across the board, and I, I was trying to look for some statistics on this, I've seen uh, John Gilligan talk a couple times. He used to be the CISO for the, uh, for the Air Force. And, um, you know, he basically said, you know, help desk tickets are down across the Air Force, virus outbreaks are down across the Air Force, you know, uptime's up, you know, all the kind of things you want to see. And what that means in the corporate world is that you, if you can control your builds, you can have a smaller IT staff, or your IT staff can be used to do more projects, maybe more incident response, maybe more, uh, you know, security things that you want to uh, want to do for. So, you know, in the corporate world, if you can make that business case for measuring and lowering and controlling cost by basically minimizing variance, if if just to throw out one of those big words, um, you know, then that's then that's something that you can really do in the real world. Mm. Excellent. So, if I could just follow up with one quick thought. Go ahead, Rich. I, the the fear that I have is that. Um, compliance has sort of been a big driver in security for, I'd say, the last five years or so. And, and unfortunately, during this time, um, I think it's been a, quite a bit of uh, a drain on people's resources. Um, so you could make the argument that compliance can be used as a lever to sort of get the things you really want and use the compliance stamp as one way to, to get them. But at the same time that we've seen this rise in compliance, when hopefully it would be a lifting of security, we've also seen the rise, and this may be a segue into your later questions, but we've also seen the rise 
of exploitation by actors who laugh at these compliance efforts. Mm. And that, to me, is what's really pretty disturbing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Um, One thing that we should probably talk about is that if you uh, configure everything exactly the same, you've got another big concept called a monoculture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right, right, which which can lead to breaches that will go forth on the entire organization. Yeah, it, That's a good point. If, you, if you, you're just given one big bullseye at that right, point, right, right. having you know, a thousand ways in, mm-hmm. you know, these, these, these actors who want to target a place, hey, if I know, if I, if I can grab company XYZ's, you know, gold disk or, you know, their, steal one of their laptops and see how it's configured, you know, I can configure some malware, some something custom, uh, that's going to target them and and you know walk right through what they're what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So you, you I know, wanted. So uh, I'm sorry, Rich. I, I just I wanted to to steer the yeah. conversation just towards um, scalability, um, sure. and then and then move on to some more of the APT stuff. Um, so, Rich, from a, a scalability perspective, and I really wanted to ask you this question: How do you scale, you know, the threat-focused security management and incident response to a really truly large scale and keep the lines of communications open, you know, both between the incident responders and, and also with management? Oh, so that's funny. I thought you were going to ask me how do you scale a controls program. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem I see. Is that controls don't scale right, past right. a certain size. It's, it's too tough. Okay, so as far as control, uh, scaling my side, uh, my side of it. Um, we do it right. So um, my enterprise, three hundred thousand plus machines under mm-hmm. managed, or sorry, three hundred thousand plus employees, mm-hmm. uh, over a million identities. If you start counting those types of things, half a million assets, hundreds of gateways, uh, we do it. And if I were to tell you the size of my staff, you'd probably fall out of your chair. Now we're hiring, um, but mm-hmm. at the same time, there are you know the, the way to do it is to gather the right kinds of information, to have the right kinds of people who know how to work with it. And to have a supportive uh, business environment and uh, collaborative uh, business security teams, mm. so it can be done. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they were perfect. I'm not saying that we're the most mature shop that's out there. You know, we have a plan to get where we want to be, but it can be done. Mm. Um, and uh, even at larger scales, you know, I, I regularly talk with my colleagues in the Department of Defense, where they're about 20 times our size. <clears throat> Um, they're doing a pretty good job given the challenges that they have to deal with as well. It, I mean, is commu- hey, communications really the, the key there, right? Between all the different areas in the organization. Yeah, I mean, I think there's communication, um, division responsibilities, right? If everyone is working on the same corner of the puzzle, you're going to get a lot of conflict and uh, Mm -hmm. wasted resources. But if you can sort of negotiate and say, all right, well, this is where you have to work. This is where I have to work Mm -hmm. because it makes the most sense. um, You can get some good results. Ron? I think that uh, the most important thing Rich said is that he's got a support from his, his management. Yeah. And uh, I've just seen a lot of organizations spend millions of dollars on sims, and they can't change firewall rules. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't uh, they can't force a patch to to, to go out because the business just doesn't uh, doesn't care. So, hey, can I ask the inverse question? Go ahead, John. I mean, if we're talking about a threat centric or a threat modeled approach for trying to identify uh, the, the threats that are coming into our environment, I think that that's great. The only downside is you're only as good as your definition of a threat. And if you're an organization that can't afford to have those red team pen testers, how do you deal with that? How do you scale down? I would say, well, there's a difference between threat and red team. Um, I know you know this, but I'll just to put it out there, um, when we when I talk about that, I talk about paying attention to who's in your enterprise. You know, who's breaking in, who's there, who's trying to steal your data. Um, red team is uh, the next mature level where. You try to get ahead of what the bad guys are doing by simulating them to see if you're good against those bad guys. If you are not capable of doing it, it's 
there's a there's a lot of good small consulting companies out there who will not charge you an arm and a leg, but who will give you a fair uh, you know fair assessment, and it's worth the money. Um, I, I you know I don't want to. Uh, it's not a commercial endorsement. I don't get any you know residuals from this, but um, Mike Rothman wrote a great self-published book called The Pragmatic CSO. And one of the steps he has in there is do an assessment. You know, you can do blue or red, you know, vulnerability or, or, or pen test, and use those results to drive drive some change. And it doesn't cost all that much. I think uh, just to go on that is, is if if you're really on the budget constrained side, the minimum thing you should be doing is running some tools. You know, fire up Nessus, buy an external scan, just see what your exposure is, right? But if if you're buying that as a consulting service, that's not really a pen test. You know, you really want people who are specialized in in uh, you know, doing doing the exploitation, doing the social engineering, doing the uh, physical attack, just so people who can understand how your business could be could be owned. Mm-hmm. It, and there's different levels to that too, right? I mean, lots of people like to bag on on red teams because they say, oh, of course, everybody can get in, whatever. I mean, you can use it for shock and awe, right? You can use it to demonstrate, oh my God, somebody can break into my network. But that's sort of like a, you know, I, I don't like that type of use for it. I like to use it for. Let's simulate what adversaries do, and let's see how good we're at we're against them. How good are our defenses? How good are our detectors and responders? How good is the business in handling with it? And once you do that, it turns into more of an exercise. And that's you know all the mature, you know non digital security industries you see they conduct exercises. People try to break into nuclear plants. People try to break into air force bases. That's the way you have to figure out if you're any good. So, Ron, how does the uh, assessment, you know, pen test or vulnerability kind of apply to the the compliance and control arena? Is that more like an audit, or should it be more of an active kind of assessment, or should you have both? Well, if you have a standard that mandates it, that's part of the control. So something right. like the NERC-FERC stuff that mandates a uh, vulnerability scan once a year, you know, it manifests itself once a quarter with PCI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you start thinking about, if you have a process for detecting change, if you look at something like SANS CAG where it says, you know, hey, one of the things you should do is monitor your backbone, see if these devices are there. Well, you know, a leprechaun's not going to leap up and tell you that a new router's there. You know, you got to do something to figure that out. Maybe it's a network management. Maybe it's a vulnerability scan. So there's lots of different ways you can apply uh, things like that. Mm. Mm. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about um, APT. And, you know, there's been some debate and fodder thrown around there about uh, APT. Um, so, Rich, I'll start with you. Um, you know, could you describe what this term means and what you believe people should know about it? Ooh, APT. <laughs> okay, so I, I've blogged extensively on this. It's tough to summarize um, what, what I've put in my blog, and I've chosen my words carefully in the blog. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read the post. No, they're very, they're very good. I, so. I like, I like the karate one. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yep. <laughs> I, I, yeah, the, yeah, the latest one. The, uh, the, I guess if I were to leave some, some thoughts, one, it is, it is a actual identifier. In other words, it's someone used the term proper noun. I think it might have been Mike Cloppert. It is a proper noun. This is not a style of attack, it, although they have style. Mm-hmm. It is not a type of malware, although they have malware. It is not a botnet, although they are not known to use botnets. Uh, this, this, is, this applies as a term because... Back in 2006, when the Air Force was working on this problem with certain um, other organizations, they needed a name that they could take in, you know, as an unclassified term when talking to the outside world. They couldn't use classified terms for it, although those exist and they continue to exist. Um, they needed a name. 
So that's where the term advanced persistent threat came from. Mm. The advanced means that they can operate from the full spectrum of using the most mundane stuff so that they look like your average hacker, all the way to developing original, novel, new exploitation and other technical means. Mm-hmm. Uh, persistent, and this is when, when what really tends to get missed. Persistent means these guys, once they get their hooks into you, they don't give up. They're the most tenacious and aggressive groups out there. Uh, and threat means that they're actors. They're not code. They're not um, a technique. They are, they are people, and they, they have identities. Mm-hmm. So, so, Ron, uh, over to you. I mean, just how would you classify and, and define the APT? Oh, I think Rich summarized it really well. I mean, to, to use something, I think, I mean, Rich and I are both in the Air Force, and, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I studied a lot was, was uh, fighter combat, you know, air to air combat. And uh, one of the things that always came out was, like, if you go up against the Red Baron, he will kick your ass every time, no matter what tactics or, you know, you need to run away when, 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 when that happens. And so the thing with, with, the, with the APT is it, it is like the worst nightmare. It's, they know how to break in, they know how to stay in, and they know how not to get caught. Mm-hmm. So how do you go look for something like that? You know, and, that's, and that's why there's so much debate and why you can go to almost anybody in the industry these days and hear a webinar on APT from them and get a completely different angle than, than what we're talking about uh, here. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. We do some correlation at, at, at Tenables. Like, well, yeah, what would you look for to look for APT? Well, okay, there's no signature. You know, there's no real impact on the host. It's going to exfiltrate data, but it's probably going to look like normal traffic. So hmm, how, how do you look for that? You know, right. um, and, and the thing is, if you really want to go look for that, when you talk to these people who found uh, these different things, I, I always like to, to, to consider how they found it. You know, was it a intrusion detection system that, that, that tripped on something? Uh, was it some activity in off hours? Was it a call to the help desk? You know, was it some one of these, you know, uh, Trojans that got misidentified by the antivirus? The tell is always really different. And uh, I'm sure we've all read, like, the Mandiant report and whatnot. Uh, but when you actually start talking to customers these days, overnight, this APT thing has got, has caught and hold. Everybody who has a virus infection thinks it's APT. Everybody who has a, <laughs> uh, an outbound, uh, you know, suspicious connection, they think, oh, oh it's, it's, a, it's APT. So that's where I'm thinking some of the marketing, it's, it's really raising awareness, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, every virus hit on an IDS is not, you know, it's not really APT. It probably isn't even going to hit, hit there. Ron, but I've got hey, a firewall. Is that an APT? Don't you think it's also interesting like, because of that? It seems like organizations are a little bit more forthcoming with saying that they've had a breach. Yeah. Because that's someone they can blame. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the, um, you know, in many ways, I could see a CIO or a legal counsel say, you know what, we had a breach. Guess what? It really wasn't our fault, right? There's a nation state stealing our data. Just like corporations are too big to fail, well, we're not big enough to protect ourselves, right? We need the help from the government and things like that. I think that's going to take the conversation way off the rails, but I'm sure in corporate America right now, if there's a big data breach, they're looking at what Google did and say, hey, let's just disclose and say it was, you know, came from China, came from, you know, for corporate espionage, something like that, and uh, we can wash our hands of it. I don't think that's going to fly. I think the American people are going to say, wait a second, you know, uh, you know, Google, you're probably smart enough to protect yourself. So um, I'll go over to Rich just for my for my next question. I'll give Ron a chance to respond as well. Um, sort of veering off from what Ron was talking about, I want to circle back around to that. But with respect to APT, and you know, this is something that we, we deal with with a, a lot of people that we talk to is, you know, hey, it's this new buzzword that comes around and it highlights an aspect of information security that, 
you know, everyone on, on this call and on the show knows, and <coughs> most people, I think probably everyone listening knows that this has been happening, right? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know it's been happening. You know people have been, there are determined hackers out there, and we've told management, hey, there could be a determined hacker out there, and they could come after us. But then this whole buzzword comes out, and now all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, someone could target mm. so, us. So, Paul, does your firewall protect you from APT? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, Rich, uh, should we ride this wave to get management to change and implement some stuff, or have we already failed at that point? Boy, it's an interesting question. So, I the biggest disappointment I've had out of this whole experience has been the adoption of the term, uh, even to the extent that some companies have registered domain names with it in there. Mm. Um, it's been to, the interesting thing about this was this. If you go back, there's history prior to the Google incident. Um, but what Google, you know, you can do searches, and I've I blogged prior to this year about this. Mandiant was very forthcoming about this uh, in previous years. Um, unfortunately, well, not, not unfortunately, Google allowed and gave cover to those who wanted to talk more about this. Um, but in, it, while doing so, it was suddenly seen as if you're not part of the counter APT solution, then what good is your product? So you saw the rise of this at I didn't attend RSA, but I saw a lot of the coverage, and unfortunately, this was covered. I don't, you know, personally, I don't think it's a great idea to rebrand everything as a counter APT solution and use that to sell to your manager because um, one, it's not going to work, um, and two, it's it's kind of, I don't know, it's not very intellectually honest. Um, and I just, if I could put a plug in there. Many people have used this as an example to say, well, this either can't exist or I don't like it because it means that there's nothing we can do about it. That is not the case at all. Um, I attended a briefing today where the topic was called fighting through. Uh, and the idea is what do you do? And this isn't a resiliency argument. Um, you know, systems have to keep going. Uh, you know, the classic cert resiliency model. Um, this is, you know, fighting through having intruders on your systems. How do you, how do you manage? So, the people who have been dealing with this just don't give up. This is something that you you can combat, uh, and the ultimate goal is making it as expensive as possible for the intruder to right. accomplish their mission. Mm-hmm. Not so that they'll go pick on somebody else, but so that they'll switch to another means that you may have a better way of dealing with them. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. they have to put a, a physical human asset into your company in order to steal information. Right, right, right. That's an excellent point. Ron, over to you. I mean, you know, should we ride this wave to get management to change, or if we failed, or you know, how do we detect uh, uh, APT? I think it's it's a um, it is it is that slippery slope. Um, Having said that, if you're in an organization where you don't have, you know, antivirus scanning, firewall logging, SIM, you know, if you don't if you don't have teams that do that, you know, using this APT to get some of that, I think that's okay. Because if if you don't have any of that, you, it's going to be really questionable, you know, if what you can do from a monitoring point of view. Uh, if you have all that though. Um, you know, and you can start really demonstrating that, hey, we can probably go look for this stuff. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you, you can do it. Uh, when, when we were at the IDS, uh, forum, one of the, that, that, that Rich, uh, was, was the chairperson of, uh, you know, one of the gentlemen that stood up was talking about, you know, auditing all outbound, you know, web access and just looking for stuff. They were using some, uh, some randomness and uh, trying to look for stuff that looked like, you know, botnets or, you know, something phoning home, different things like that. And, you know, they were trying to draw the line to, hey, you know, there could be malware on here that's exfiltrating data, things like that. And, um, 
you know, maybe that's a great technique. Maybe you can do that. You're going to find a bunch of stuff that, that, that that's going out. But, you know, you're really kind of spitting in the wind at that point. I mean, there could be really, really, really good APT sitting right next to that custom written code that's, you know, hiding in, you know, PGP signature blocks and just exfiltrating data a little bit at a time. You have no idea how, how the bad guys are doing it. Maybe it's wireless. Maybe it's different things like that. So anything you can do to increase monitoring is going to be better, but you really have to ask, you know, be careful what you're asking for and try not to oversell it. Because if you do say, hey, the solution to this is to go buy a commercial IPS and then you get owned, you know, 90 days after you install that stuff, mm. that's, that's tough. That's the risk you run. Right. So, uh, so Rich, was there any uh, closing thoughts that you had on um, either the controls debate or APT or any other topics that you, that you wanted to discuss? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to pander to the chairman of my company, but um, one of the things Jeff Immelt talked about during the depths of the recession was uh, we were in a reset economy. And I think that kind of applies to 2010. I feel like this is sort of a reset year in security. Uh, when Google was, was brave enough to say that they had a problem, it really, really made an impression on me that here is the place where a lot of the big brains in the industry go, in IT or even security, and yet they are fighting this type of intruder. So if that's something that they're having uh, trouble with, then you know it really makes an interesting case for the rest of us. And it kind of reset my expectations for what what is reasonable for people to be able to handle. So um, you know I, I've always been an advocate for detection and response. Um, I, I don't advocate that at the expense of everything else. I feel like it's just more of a neglected area. You know, a lot of people put emphasis on planning and resistance, but if you're not doing the detection and response piece, you don't really know how your, your planning and, and resistance is going. So I'm more of a balanced person. I'm just trying to you know, bring balance to the force, uh, hopefully not by killing all the Jedi, but just by bringing <laughs> some attention to an area. <laughs> Excellent. Ron? Uh, anything you can do to you know, force the attacker to do something that's more obvious is going to be a good thing. Uh, I'm working with a customer right now. They they distribute podcasts, right? They basically distribute you know real audio streams. They've got about 200 different web servers on their perimeter, uh, eight or nine uh, FTP servers, and uh, inside their network they've got and a whole other similar type of, uh, of of organization. They have nine different types of web servers, and actually every one of those FTP servers that I talk about is a completely different FTP. It's like they went out and got their own uh, uh, type of, of thing. We don't have logging from everything. We have NetFlow from stuff. We don't have uh, IDS on the entire network. It's, it's really, really difficult to even get a sense of what's going on. Uh, I have other customers where they've really been able to say, hey, look, you know, we've got one standard build for all of our web servers. They're all configured this way. They're all do certainly, they all run these commands, right? If anything changes on any of those web servers, whether it's a different type of flow or a different type of command being run, it's really, really obvious to see something that's, that's being abused, whether it's an insider, a compromised system, or different things like that. So the point of all that is the more you can do from a controls point of view to standardize, the more easier times you're going to have to look for anomalies, abuse, things that are working in an odd way or in, in a way that they're supposed to do. And uh, that's, that's really what I hope people can do. And hopefully organizations like that aren't going to get attacked by, you know, in network type attacks. And it's going to be something else where they might have an easier time to, uh, to defeat somebody. Mm. 
So uh, one last question for you both was that I, which I think both ties into the controls debate and the APT debate. And one of the trends that I've noticed, you know, since we started doing this podcast in 2005, and there's been a lot of different events that have triggered it. It seems to me that when people find vulnerabilities or new techniques <coughs> for breaking into systems, for remaining persistent into systems, for you know zero day exploits or whatever the case may be. They seem to keep it to themselves more in fear of the vendor coming after them, in fear of lawsuits. Um, just the whole attitude of not wanting to release it out to the public seems to be permeating throughout our culture. Um, so um, I'll, I'll start with Rich first. Um, so how do it, do you think that's true? And if so, it, what can we do to, to best defend ourselves against this threat? So you're talking about people who make discoveries but are less willing to reveal it? Yeah, and I think that what uh, I should clarify there, using it for their own personal gain, more along the lines of, you know, maintaining access into a network um, sure. to, to, to make profit, you know? Well, I think the thing to realize is that that research isn't really free. I mean, we, we might consider it's free because someone's doing it without getting paid, but that's real work that's being done, and it does have a value. Um, sometimes you can elicit those from the, the researchers, you know, through their own goodwill. Sometimes you can elicit them through pay-for-exploit programs like iDefense might have or, or Tipping Point. Um, other times you can try to establish relationship with those researchers, like Microsoft has done with, with various parties. But uh, it's really at the prerogative of the person who does the research. And, uh, you know, that's, that is real work that's being done, and you have to respect what they're working on. Mm. Ron, over to you. Yeah, I would probably take it just a slightly different different angle. You know, if you're a large organization and you're worried about somebody coming after you with a zero day, you know, you shouldn't worry about that. You should basically assume that that's going to happen to say, hey, I've got zero days on my network right now. You know, Microsoft Tuesday is not a surprise. So you, they should be designing their network <coughs> with the notion that these things can be broken into. Now, the other way to look at this is that you know, there's zero days and there's publicly disclosed vulnerabilities. But, you know, when, when, when I buy something from Dell and it shows up via FedEx, I don't know if that box has been tampered with. I right, don't know right. if somebody was able to get a hold of that and tamper, put tamper, uh, tampered with either the hardware, the software, things like that. And, you know, that could be a way that people are getting into these networks. And, and a lot of times people start looking for vulnerabilities and things like, you know, I, I don't, this system might be 100% patched, but just sent nine gigabytes out the network and nobody's on it. You know, that it's, it's, um, there's all sorts of ways to compromise a network. The bad guys cheat. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the way people, people need to be looking for, for as much of that, that, uh, that they can. Well, Ron and Rich, thank you very much. Um, for presenting both sides of uh, of the argument and talking about uh, the various topics, such as uh, you know controls and the uh, the threat centric monitoring programs, and discussing the the latest buzzword of APT. So thank you both for coming on the show. You're welcome. Hopefully, we didn't uh, cause anybody to quit the industry and go take up uh, painting or cooking. <laughs> or anything, <you> know? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Alrighty. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Rich. Have a good one, guys. With that. Bye. We will take a short commercial break, and when you say we come back and uh, we wrap up the show. Sounds good. It is so exciting, I can smell it. Give us the juicy stuff. I mean, there was a lot of higher math, which I just don't get. How much did you have to drink? You're right, Larry. (laughs) 
We are sorry, but this program has ended and no further calls are being taken. Thank you for calling. I am your faith healer. back just to say goodbye we should mention that the core discount code is impact bsg as in battle star galactic we forgot to mention that after last week's um world speed record paul.com podcast oh, we get kicked out of the building yeah that was Poor Jared's like i didn't know how to edit that so i i did the best i could i, I tried but it, it i don't know the ones i the one i had to pick up was just came in way wrong so what are you gonna do <laughs> it is what it is. Move on. Try yeah. again better next week. Exactly. That's John and uh, Carlos and Mark, are you still there? Yep. How's it going, guys? Yep. Do you have any Good parting day. words for our Paul.com listeners? Good night. Very original, John. <laughs> Very nice. Nice shoes. Wanna? Oh. <laughs> That's a different kind of parting. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. Uh, so, Larry, why don't you take us out? Thanks for listening to Paul.com. Over and out. I like it when he.